The fall of First Republic Bank was the second largest bank failure by assets in U.S. history, putting us in the 2008 conversation. Times are different, but the bank failures are relatable in size. The total assets of three 2023 failures have already eclipsed the total assets of all of the banks that failed during the great financial crisis. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. I hope you guys are having an awesome week. Um, and uh, just to let everybody know, I'm going to be hanging out on... I think we're talking about philosophy or something. I don't even remember the topic, but we're doing uh, Bitcoin Magazine uh, Twitter Spaces tomorrow morning uh, at 9 o'clock Eastern. I don't know. We'll be talking about Bitcoin and probably a lot of other stuff around it which probably means it's going to be fun and i'm kind of stoked so i just realized i don't really share a lot of those things that i have scheduled and things that i'm like set to do so if you will be around nine o'clock tomorrow on some twitter spaces i'll be there so stop by hang out listen with that we have a great read today because the banking system is falling to pieces and on fire a bank that just got bailed out for tens of billions of dollars, like $60 billion or something like that, has collapsed. First Republic Bank. Just incredible. And uh, I, this is going to continue and get worse. Um, it's going to spread out quite a bit. So I wanted to talk about it again and reiterate some of the issues. And the layered, the layered, the Bitcoin layer, um, a substack or newsletter from uh, Joe Consorti and Nick Batia just had a really good short piece on it today because the Treasury has the tax bill or the tax uh, revenue um, came in way under estimate and they are going to run out of money in like a month. So we are already back to the whole debt ceiling mess and we are in the highest, like the interest rates are being pushed higher. They are potentially going to be raised again tomorrow while we are just watching banks fail and while regional banks the the value of these banks are plummeting because equity like investors are just trying to dump all of these stocks i mean it's really kind of nuts and so i try to hit the little pieces and updates on these things as we go along and i'm a big fan of the bitcoin layer um i think they always have uh they always have a really good macro take and always have some interesting positions on it. I think I think there's a lot more nuance than you usually get because it's so easy to just kind of like scream the alarm at the craziness of it all, which is kind of more my style, honestly, whether I like to admit it or not. But because of that, I, I really enjoy and I really appreciate kind of like the measured and the really the attempts to remove bias or to remove the projection of what we already expect to happen from the situation and just kind of looking at it um, with as if we have fresh eyes. And I feel like the Bitcoin layer does a really good job of that. That's one of the reasons I try to keep up with it. 
Probably another great example that I just love on this show, if you're not super familiar with a lot of these pieces, Lynn Alden, also a really, really great resource for that sort of thinking. And I will also note that I'm not 100% sure if Joe and Nick would be like a little bit upset with me reading this aloud on the show. I don't think so, because like I know, I know those are, I know they're really good guys. And I feel like I'm doing, I feel like I'm giving them exposure and I'm talking good about them. But just in case, don't tell them and it will be our little secret. I'm sure this won't get out and nobody will find out. Love you, Nick. Okay, with that, let's get into, into the read. Uh, I just want to thank our sponsors, Swan Bitcoin, Fold, and CoinKite. Make this show happen. And they are amazing resources and products and services if you are getting into Bitcoin, if you want, uh, you want to know how to secure your Bitcoin, like getting into Bitcoin is not, it can't be easier than Fold and Swan Bitcoin. Um, Fold, literally, you use a debit card that stacks Sats. You get one percent back in in Sats all the time, legit on your bills. That's super low barrier. That is that is crazy low friction. And then Swan, you can just set up an automatic recurring uh, plan that will just automatically withdraw to your keys. And then what I mean when I say to your keys, I mean that you have a cold card. I mean that you have a hardware wallet. I mean that you have a hardware security device that is keeping your Bitcoin safe. And there are discounts and goodies and special links in the show notes so you can check them out. And honestly, with the banking situation, I think the low barrier, the easy, reliable, trustworthy ways to get into Bitcoin to, to stack regularly and to keep it safe arguably the most important things that you could check out like just take a couple of minutes and look into it if you haven't done it yet you need to but anyway just a shout out to them for keeping the show alive and for being such great stewards of the services and products in this space with that let's get into today's read and it's titled the banking crisis is not going anywhere and the treasury is out of money Tomorrow's FOMC announcement falls to the back of the pack by Joe Consorti and Nick Batia. Dear readers, we have spent the past few trading sessions pondering just what exactly the Fed is doing. March's bank failures now look to be followed up with April and May failures, and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has officially warned Congress that we are less than 30 days away from a default. But don't worry, Jerome, follow your gut. We end with our thoughts on tomorrow's FOMC. Yellen goes into panic. I respectfully urge Congress to protect the full faith and credit of the United States by acting as soon as possible. Sincerely, Janet L. Yellen. Janet Yellen sent a letter to House Speaker McCarthy begging for mercy. This is not something we witness very often, despite enduring countless debt ceilings over the past decade. The U.S. Treasury recently updated its borrowing estimates by several hundred billion dollars. The cause? Undershooting tax receipts. Quote, U.S. Treasury, we expect to borrow $726 billion in net marketable debt for April to June period, up $449 billion from the January 2023 estimate, end quote. A tweet from Breaking Market News. We see the bounce in cash balance, but without the ability to issue more net debt and without the big tax influx of April, May is likely to be the last month 
in which the treasury can pay its bills. We were never under any impression that this would all resolve peacefully or even with enough time to breathe. But now that we are down to the wire, our interest goes beyond the debt ceiling. We expect the liquidity swings due to changes in bill issuance and treasury cash balance to be outsized. Hot off the press at market close yesterday, Yellen stated that the U.S. Treasury would run out of cash as soon as June 1st. Her timeline shifted forward from September to less than a month from now. Bloomberg, quote, Yellen warns Congress Treasury may run out of cash as soon as June. Treasury chief urges lawmakers to raise or suspend the debt limit. Yellen has warned that payments default would be devastating. End quote. In an unsurprising related event, the implied default probability on U.S. government debt has risen to multi-decade highs on a five-year debt. Of course, CDS or credit default swaps on U.S. Treasuries need to be taken with a grain of salt. The credit default swaps for the U.S. government are little more than an illiquid gauge for sentiment towards the U.S. government's funding situation. These contracts do not necessarily reflect actual default risk. But the market's expression is noteworthy, as today's rates do extend beyond any range that could be considered normal. Said otherwise, the risk of extreme events is strongly believed to be non-zero. The worst-case scenario currently seems to be a temporary pause on repayment by the Treasury, but we will wait much closer to any deadline to analyze such an occurrence. What we can do instead is speculate on what will happen after a resolution is reached. Market liquidity will be sucked into the TGA, the Treasury's account at the Fed, due to the increase in bill issuance and the proverbial filling up the coffers that would go along. The money that ends up at the Treasury comes from somewhere. Some will be from bank funding, Treasury repo, the Fed's reverse repo facility, as well as other places. In that process, liquidity is removed from the rest of the system. We view this liquidity event as one with enormous potential to negatively affect markets. Nationalizing the banks implicitly. The fall of First Republic Bank was the second largest bank failure by assets in U.S. history, putting us in the 2008 conversation. Times are different, but the bank failures are relatable in size. The total assets of three 2023 failures have already eclipsed the total assets of all of the banks that failed during the great financial crisis. J.P. Morgan looks to have come across some sweet terms from the FDIC, assuming all of First Republic's $92 billion in deposits, insured and uninsured, while receiving a financing line from the FDIC itself, terms undisclosed, of course. The story continued with a bloodbath in regional banks today. PacWest seems to be in the market's crossfire as the next potential victim. Speaking to large clients of First Republic and PacWest this week, the implicit nationalization and extension of FDIC insurance into the $10-plus million range seems to be now the assumed stance throughout regional banks, the government, and the depositors themselves. This leaves who to realize losses? equity, and bondholders. And for that reason, we aren't seeing as much of a deposit flight this time. Deposits are assumed to be protected, hence our use of the word nationalized. The flight is now from anybody who actually owns the equity in these banks, 
because the market is behaving like a couple dozen of these mid-sized banks are going away. What is behind these bank failures? Gargantuan losses on investment securities that banks are forced to realize to meet withdrawal requests, stomaching huge losses in the process. Once word gets out, the deposit flight is exacerbated, and in the digital age, that's a wrap. It's a recipe for disaster for banks that don't have well-rounded funding to withstand this brutal combination. Just look at the size of these losses at the big four. I'm interjecting here just because this chart is insane. Um, the, the chart estimates that with Wells Fargo, Citigroup, JP Morgan, and Bank of America, um, this is the cumulative losses between the four of them. And if you just see this chart, it goes all the way back to 2009 on this chart, just showing like the relative gains and or losses. And these are unrealized losses, by the way. So these are losses that have not been printed. They have not sold the assets that would mean this this amount lost in money, but that it appears to be between 200 and 250 billion dollars in total, and it could very well get worse as we move forward. But I'll have the link in the show notes so you can check this out. I highly encourage just looking at this thing because it's kind of alarming. Okay, let's jump back in. This is more of a problem that is particularly acute for regionals who have much smaller deposit bases and why we keep seeing equity prices fall as deposit outflows force banks to realize losses that wither away their assets. We've had our eye on the bank reserves chart amidst QT. Reserve constraints will continue to be hit and this will result in financial sector trouble. At the Bitcoin layer, we are not banking experts in that it is difficult for us to employ analysis that identifies which banks might fail and why. Instead, we understand leverage, market cycles, and the effects of the Fed's wild balance sheet swings on asset prices around the globe. The Fed is going to lean on open market operations to keep its QT intact, while plugging holes when and where they appear. Just watch tomorrow as they try to hike rates into yet another month of banking crisis. With mid-sized U.S. banks as the primary target of tightening monetary policy, we are left scratching our heads wondering why the Fed wouldn't simply admit that the risks are now balanced between inflation and financial stability. Alert! Trade offer! I receive 2% inflation target, you receive no regional banks. Tomorrow, we look for the Fed's language shift, but the yield curve's inverted pressure won't allow the Fed to stray too hawkish. The extent to which they admit problems in the system caused specifically by QT, and not only the cumulative tightening, is likely to be scant, and precisely the reason why longer-term treasury yields are stubbornly low and seeing buyers at every price dip. Until next time, Nick and Joe. All right, and that wraps up the Bitcoin layer update on their um, on their newsletter or their Substack. Obviously, I will have a link to it um, if you want to subscribe. It's incredibly useful. It's one of the few that I well, I actually give up with quite a, quite a number of them. Have a 
whole list of like this email like database of like great writings and market analysis and update that I try to keep up with. And the Bitcoin layer is always a good one. I mean, you guys know I'm a huge fan of Nick Batia in particular. Joe is awesome too. And specifically, they've had some kind of counter takes to what the um, and I think they had really they had really good argument and really good point on it um, for some of the narratives that had been pushed regarding the hawkishness of the Fed and the fact that they were going to have to change course and why basically there's there's this an extended time in which the Fed has remained hawkish. Um, and I think there's just a lot of pushback and forth and attempts at trying to figure out what the hell Jerome is thinking and what they can get away with doing. And honestly, I just really value their opinion. So check it out. I, I don't even know if they want me to... I don't know if this is in the paid... Thing. I don't know. I don't know. I, like I said at the beginning, I don't know if they want me to read this on the show. Um, I hope they're not bothered by this, but I will just direct you to their Substack to subscribe. I'm sure if they get a couple extra subscribers, they won't really be too upset. <laughs> With that, let's take a pause really quick, hit our sponsor, and then we will jump back in because I really want to start to unfold uh, a lot of what is going on. Speaking of folding things, if you get yourself a fold debit card... You literally get 1% back in sats all the time. Now, a normal credit card is going to pay you points or airline miles or whatever, whatever stupid thing that they give you, generally fiat trash. But they give you those rewards because you're paying them interest. If you pay one month of interest on any balance that you have on that credit card, you are paying them more than you are getting back in rewards. What Fold has is a debit card that pays you 1% back on everything that you do, on all of your bills. And by the way, the PayPal bill pay for the companies that only take like ACH, like mortgages and stuff, you can now set it up through PayPal bill pay. It's back up and running. And you can use your debit card and yes, get 1% back on your mortgage, on your utilities. It is a clever little trick and they have worked directly with them to make sure that is still th that, that has been renewed. But then you can get gift cards, DoorDash, Uber, 3% back. DoorDash is like 7% back. Amazon, 2.5%. 2.5% on everything that you get at Amazon, and it is not credit. It is one of the lowest friction ways to stack Bitcoin all of the time without having to buy it. You are just doing it by default while you use fiat. Seriously, get paid in Bitcoin to use fiat. Check out Fold. Go to bitcoinaudible.com slash fold. Get some free sats while you're at it and check them out. With that, let's jump back in. All right. So, man, this is a mess. Um, the banking system is like what's what's really sucks about this is just what an incredible what an incredible centralizing force this was back in 2008 and that essentially this effect is going to double or triple this time around because we already have insanely restrictive and I mean, like we're we're talking about picking winners and losers like nobody's business in an ecosystem where essentially everyone is a loser except who the government says. This is, we are so insolvent and we are in such a horrible financial situation. We have such a terrible foundation of this 
that there is, I mean, he, he, they say it in this article, Joe and Nick, like implicitly, we are nationalizing the entire banking system. And I think that's the only, that is the only way this thing survives. It just can't keep running in its current state. And while treasury, while the treasury, while the, the bills of the government and the interest charges of the government are hitting record highs, the, the fallout, the, the incredible underestimate of what tax revenue was going to be, of what the tax income was expected to be, is crazy. That's a huge, huge difference in their tax bill. And if they're trying to raise taxes, they're raising it into a situation where everyone is broke and everyone is dealing with higher costs because of the inflation. Like this, this is the this is the no good way out. It's a path of total banking crisis and nationalization of the banks and high interest rates and massive deflation that must be countered in some form or fashion or and a collapse of like asset prices and you know retirement accounts and pension funds or a collapse in the currency someone has to pay for this bill this is the end result of decades and decades of people saying oh you're one of those people who think the debt matters i still i still had some lunatic some blind asinine fool on twitter give me this line just the other day and i'm like are you not looking at anything like how blind can you possibly be to think that what what does the debt mean what does debt mean money is not arbitrary money is a consequence the movement of money is a direction and allocation of real resources the money is just a tally system it's a record keeping system you can't Screw with the record-keeping system and think that it means that you have more stuff. It's like going to a warehouse and then just like updating crap on the spreadsheet and thinking it means that the warehouse has more stuff. No, it doesn't. It just makes your spreadsheet meaningless. Just like they have made our money meaningless in the sense of economic coordination. A deficit means any loss, any nominal loss when you're talking about real money means that we are consuming more resources than we have produced. More value is being destroyed than created. If we think, if we pretend, if we adopt the delusion, the psychotically immature fairy tale that that doesn't matter and that we can do that forever, this is where you end up. Our country has been run by children. Stupid children at that. Children who have absolved themselves of the responsibility of the most basic of common sense. You can't keep destroying things and get wealthier. And you can't cook the books and think that you're going to get more stuff out of it. But that has been government and central bank policy for a really, really long time. The three banks that have failed thus far are greater in monetary value than all of the banks that went under in 2008. And this is just beginning. Here's the odd thing, is that I don't even know, like, so will it be equity and bondholders? Like, like what? There's so many things are tied to each other. Like, the value of everything is dependent on the debt that is propping it up, because people are able to invest in things. Essentially, the value is, it's just like your house, right? Is that 
You think that your house is worth X and therefore you live according to a certain, I mean, your, your retirement is because it's based on the value of your house. And most people don't realize it, but they're tied together because everything is leveraged into something else. Like, where do you think pension funds? Where do you think, you know, long-term uh, where do you think a lot of these corporations invest their money? Mortgage-backed securities, bonds, all of these things. So your retirement that is dependent on the the equity and the amount of value and stuff in these bonds that are getting destroyed, these things are specifically valuable because of the value in the house, because of the value in the economy, because of the assets, the productivity. But these things collapse because... They aren't driven, their prices aren't driven by savings, by earnings that have actually been capitalized or that, uh, that's by stock that has actually been crystallized, i.e. savings, i.e. real capital. They are completely propped up by flows. They are completely propped up by new debt being issued. When the debt stops being issued, because we've been issuing it far and beyond what was ever sustainable for an incredibly long time, well then so do the value of all of these assets. And then there's this huge domino effect. I talk about the domino thing a lot because I think it's a really good analogy. It's a really good visualization of what the problem is, is that when you have savings and real capital buffers, when you have uh, actual savings, when not like a bearer asset like cash, something that is not a that does not have counterparty risk that is not dependent on someone else's fulfillment of something in order for it to be valuable it is valuable in its own right and it is productivity that has been crystallized into capital savings is a buffer against the financial collapse or contagion of your neighbor liquid cash is the barrier to insolvencies dominoing through an economy. So when you have an economy where nobody has any savings, where everything is just tied up in assets that are tied up in other assets that are packaged in derivatives and market instruments that are stuck into people's retirements and that are all propped up because somebody else is able to issue more debt to buy more of it and prop up its value in the market beyond what any sustainable price actually looks like, well then when something goes wrong, it's why you have to have growth. It's why you can't sit still. That is the ultimate, that's the incredible disease of modern economics is that the economy, if we had a, an economy based on savings, if we had a, an economy based on actually realizing and growing the stock of capital, well, then we could sit still and we'd be fine. Just like the, the analogy, I think Nick Batia actually has used this analogy in the past, of it's like the difference between somebody standing and somebody on a bike, is that if you're standing... And you can walk or run or whatever it is, and you can you know move along, and then you can also just sit still. You can just chill, and you're fine. But if you're on a bike, you can't sit still. You have to move forward. That is the situation that this never-ending debt, ref the refinancing of our previous financing system and the fractional reserve system in particular has put us in, is that we, it's like riding a bike. We can't stop. We can't stop growing, and it makes the entire economy insanely fragile. And then you add to that the moral hazard, the nationalization of the industry, of like the fact that 
uh, the banks themselves, the government, and the depositors are just kind of certain that this is all going to be, like, all the money is going to be there. Like, it's like, in one instance, it's like, well, okay, you know, like, all the depositors, that's what they don't want. They don't want the public to see the, the scope of the problem. And if they can always just keep going to their bank account and they just hear this stuff on the news and things change and they don't really know what happened, but their bank account keeps running... Well, then, I mean, just think about it like a lot of you listening. You're probably just going to like be like, oh, this is crazy. That's insane. And then you'll go on to the next episode, right? As long as the public doesn't feel it, doesn't directly interact with the catastrophe, it's like the government can kind of paper over and lie and gaslight the living crap out of everyone and just pretend like nothing is going wrong or that it's somebody else's fault or that they've got the situation under control or that Russia did it. And you know, everybody's lives are too busy anyway. You got to go to your work. You got, you know, you got exams, you got, there's a million different things that everybody has to worry about in their own life that they have to like figure out how to respond or adapt to this psychotically huge distant situation that just feels like a movie in some far off land. But the problem is we are going to continuously be more and more connected to it. There is a reason why it is an incredibly prevalent, very common discussion that I run into random people that share this sentiment and are actually talking about issues that you would never have considered normal 10 years ago. Now, never. The idea of like people talking about CBDCs and interest rate and what the Fed is going to do and the different, like the idea of calling it fiat money at all, it was unheard of, unheard of a decade ago. It was simply not in the scope of the normal people mindset. The fact that that is happening is an indication of how, just how bad it is becoming, and it is just getting started. That's the crazy thing. Now, I don't know what this means. You know, maybe it's good that the typical depositor is, I don't know, not running for the hills because it just means more banking collapses. Um, but see, this is why there's so many moving pieces and the, the situation is such a mess and there's so many interconnected insolvencies and just straight up corruption from top to bottom in the thing that I just don't even know like I have to have a bank I have to have a dollar bank account and it just scares the living crap out of me you know out anything outside of like at least fold pays me one percent in bitcoin for using it so I can withdraw that money but other than my bitcoin I just have no assurances like I I it's so weird that people think that that is a safe place to put money in, that Bitcoin is like volatile and scary. And all I can, th all, like, I, I'm, maybe I'm just so deep in it, I can't see anything but the opposite. I mean, do you really want to be in the banking system when it is essentially fully nationalized by the U.S. government? When it is fully centralized and they decide to wrap whatever value you have in it into whatever new system they replace it with? You think that's going to be a good system? Do we really think it's going to be for our benefit that maybe that finally they'll come up with responsible rules and take a little bit of an Austrian theory into account and recognize the stupidity of fractional reserve banking, of thinking that you can print your way to wealth? I mean, seriously, does anybody think that? I don't know. It's a mess. It's a mess. I still I can't believe that guy who... <laughs> it's so funny like there's a day where I would have felt odd I know I would have felt odd like fighting back against the 
you know, deficits don't matter. And I would have felt like the odd man out, um, trying to make that argument. And, um, and I was, I, I have been in the past. I mean, I was telling people that Bitcoin was a good idea in 2011 and 2012 and people thought I was absolutely nuts. So just got, I guess I just got used to being that guy. But now I just can't imagine holding that stance, still saying the deficits don't matter line and not just feeling stupid, like just not feeling embarrassed. And maybe it's just, you know, it's just pure ignorance and I don't want to, you know, rub it in anybody's face too much just because, you know, everybody's got their lives and God knows nobody has time to sort all of this crap out. But it still feels like we're past that. Or at least it felt like to me we were past that point. But maybe with every single, like the debt ceiling doesn't matter and the show that the politicians put on as if they're not going to raise it this time. Maybe it just completely desensitizes people and if that's your entire exposure to it, I guess it makes sense. I guess it makes sense there's still a ton of people who hold that position. But anyway, I'm just going to try and buy some more Bitcoin. And I am super upset about the Prime Trust thing in uh, North Carolina. Everybody who's not in North Carolina, you guys are fine. Um, but uh, if you bought Bitcoin through Fold or you have been buying Bitcoin through Swan Bitcoin in North Carolina, well, that is going to all be on hold for a little while. Um, fold, definitely withdraw your Bitcoin. This does not seem to apply to rewards. I'm going to confirm this. In fact, I meant to send a message today, um, but there was no mention of this and I am still acting as if that's not a problem because the money transmitter license, the, the issue that North Carolina is, uh, uh, that Prime Trust is having with North Carolina is specifically about that. It's not about um, rewards are basically in a different category. And Swan Bitcoin is, uh, they said they're going to keep everybody updated and they're trying to find a new partner to get ACHs back up and you can still wire to them. But it's just crazy to think that you have to wire money to a, to a U.S. company because of this stupid situation. And that's really something that I think is important to, to point out is, and I'm not sure who has felt this, you know, maybe I'm just kind of like isolated in this weird little place. Um, but I felt like everything in the banking system has slowed to a crawl. Everything is taking longer. Everything is more of a pain than it usually is. And I expect that to continue to get worse. That's why I'm kind of trying to make it a focus to really push people into having a Bitcoin alternative um, to at least being exposed to it, to, to having a foot in the door, to have a wallet, even if it's just a custodial wallet. That's why I want to push the contractors and the businesses that I'm working with to accept Bitcoin directly, um, which again, they can just taint, change it into dollars. I don't really care. That's not that big of a deal to me. Like I'm not an idiot. They have costs and they don't know anything about Bitcoin, but just being able to integrate with the Bitcoin economy and not having to do that when things just stop working. And we will likely see that at multiple, uh, multiple stages or during periods going forward where things will just stop working for a little while and moving money will be really, really difficult or really expensive or things might get lost. Like I think the inter, the, the within the nation 
monetary system and financial system and moving of money is probably going to start behaving like the international system is trust is going to break down and the ability to move money to move funds from one bank to another it's just going to get increasingly difficult until it is fully centralized now maybe i'm wrong and they can just kind of paper over all of this and pretend nothing is happening and you know depositors can just like go about their day with their fingers in the ears and their eyes closed but i think there's a simple quote in this article that just alludes to my feelings and my degree of nervousness about it and why I think we should just have a foot out the door just in case. So they mentioned the huge spike in the price on the credit default swaps for the U.S. government, um, but notes that they are an illiquid gauge just on kind of sentiment towards the U.S. government's uh, funding situation. Um, so they do not necessarily reflect actual default risk. But, quote, the market's expression is noteworthy, as today's rates do extend beyond any range that could be considered normal. Said otherwise, the risk of extreme events is strongly believed to be non-zero. And I think that's the simple truth that we need to recognize, is that th this is not business as usual. The risk of extreme events is non-zero, whatever that means. And that is specifically why Bitcoin, Bitcoin is not built for features. Bitcoin is not built for, you know, speed or fast transactions. Lightning is, but Bitcoin is not built for that. Bitcoin is built for survival, to be an indestructible, open, global network that is always there. And having a piece of that, having a little bit of exposure to it, knowing how to interoperate with it, when the shit hits the fan, I think is going to be an incredibly valuable asset. And a great place to get started is with the amazing sponsors of this show. Very sorry to the North Carolinians. I feel your pain. Uh, things will get sorted out with Swan, but Swan Bitcoin is the best onboarding. And you can even put Bitcoin in your IRA and they are expanding their offerings. And of course, Fold that gets you sats back is nothing like getting sats back today while all this stuff is going on and just seeing that going up all the time. And then lastly, you're going to want to keep all, you, you need to hold your own keys, which is why you need a cold card. You need uh, CoinKite has so many great hardware devices and means of separating your keys from, you know, your security hole ridden computer and mobile device. And they make it easy. They make it so you can just touch your cold card to your phone, your tap signer, and you have secure access to sending and receiving Bitcoin. Check them out if you haven't. I work with these guys because these are great ways to get into Bitcoin, to get exposed to Bitcoin, to start keeping your Bitcoin safe. They're not arbitrary recommendations. I hope you guys know that. With that, we will close this one out. Stay safe, everybody. Stack Bitcoin. And I'll catch you on the next Bitcoin Audible. Until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. The first lesson of economics is scarcity. There is never enough of anything to satisfy all those who want it. The first lesson of politics is to disregard the first lesson of economics. Thomas Sowell
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.